This is episode 28 of the Higher Christian Life broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When it comes to faith and believing, there's the kind of faith that rests in the mind. You know, the sterile, inactive, academic kind of belief that makes you smarter, but not necessarily more spiritual. And then there's the kind of faith that is active, kinetic, and is driven by a deep trust in the very object of that faith. And this is the kind of faith in God that is vital when trying to experience the higher Christian life. Just think, one kind of faith is passive and one is active, and only one leads to action, the kind of heroic action that we see on display, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11. And it is this kind of faith that will lead to victory over our shame because of our sin and our failure, and is the kind of faith required to please Him. So let's jump right in and discover why spiritual victory is always found in believing God's promises with active, vibrant faith as we learn more about the higher Christian life. In our last podcast, we shared the hope that we can have for true spiritual victory over our continued failure against sin and shame, and we introduced three truths that you must believe, they must become bedrock to you in order to enter into the joy of the higher Christian life. And over the next few days, as we shared, we said that we would dig deep into each of these truths in order to understand the importance of our unwavering faith in God's promise. Because after all, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And that's from Hebrews eleven six. But we know that. I mean, that's second nature to us if you've been a believer for any time at all. Yet we still fail nonetheless. Now, we're going to have to take a small detour today because we're not going to be actually beginning to unpack these because there's really a deeper foundation that we must understand first before we can even be introduced to these three truths. But I do want to state them for you one more time. And again, we'll be talking about these in the days to come. Number one, with your sinful nature, with your flesh, you and I are incapable, period, cannot happen of producing anything good, no matter how hard we try, period, end of discussion. Now, this truth may make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, but you will find out as we get into this, it is true nonetheless. Number two, the blessing part of this is God has given us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us for the very purpose, as it says in Philippians 2.13, that he works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, again, that seems easy to accept, but as we look at this a little deeper, you will see the implications of this are profound, especially when it comes to experiencing the higher Christian life. And number three, and this is the kicker, when Christ was crucified, he took with him to the cross, not only our sins, which we all agree, but also our sin nature, or as Paul says in Romans 6, our old man. And it is here here in our understanding and our acceptance and our reckoning of this fact of what Christ accomplished on the cross, that the true victory over our failure and sin is found. For the believer, this is home 
base. We'll be looking at that over the next couple sessions, but I need to share with you something even more important, a foundation here before we're able to even accept these three truths as true. I want you to think about your spiritual life. Like most believers, you probably experienced uh, an exuberant infusion of love and joy and peace when you first came to Christ and when he first became real to you. You were overwhelmed with joy and you couldn't believe that you are experiencing something that to you never seemed real. After all, this love and joy and peace is exactly what he promised he would do for you. All of a sudden, your prayers got answered. Surprisingly, Really, surprisingly, God's word became alive to you, and unexpectedly, you found yourself very excited, just giddy, talking with others about the joy of your newfound faith. I mean, everything was roses, at least for a season. And then something happened. Something changed. And we're not sure what, and we're not sure when, but we're now different than how we used to be. You probably can't put your finger on the exact moment or the exact event, but what seemed so alive in you began to fade. Gradually, over time, the joy of your Christian life subsided, and the old temptations came roaring back because temptations love a vacuum. And instead of, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, or in Ephesians 6, girding yourself up with the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, remember? Your mind began to linger lustfully on those things that you'd once forsaken, and you found yourself drawn back into the old life, to the dark side of who you once were, to that old man, as Paul said, that was buried and dead, but is now arisen and alive again, like some character from The Walking Dead. And the rest you know this is true, plays out like a B-rated horror flick. Before you knew it, you found yourself once again doing what you had already repented of and promised God that you would never do again. And once you did it, conviction came, followed by the inevitable downpour of guilt that quickly turned into shame. And like Adam, trying to hide from God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, you tried to hide from God's presence by refusing to seek him in prayer, or Bible study, or fellowship, or worship at church. Remember? And then questions and self-accusations followed. See if these are familiar to you, because they sure were with me. How can I claim to be a Christian and go back and do what I said I would never do again? How is that possible? What must God think of me now? Why wasn't my faith stronger? Am I really that weak? There must be something wrong with me. Is this what I can expect as a Christian? Victory and defeat and more defeat followed by even more defeat? And then Jesus said in John 10, 10, that he came to give me an abundant life. But it sure doesn't seem like an abundance of anything other than failure and shame. And then if you're like many others, you prayed, I'm so sorry, Lord. Please forgive me for being such a hypocrite. I'll never tell anyone about you again until I can get victory over my life of sin. 
And when you prayed that prayer, that was probably the last time you ever shared Christ with anyone. Because for many, getting victory over the life of sin often never happens. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it should, because what I've shared with you is pretty much a common outline of the spiritual odyssey of most believers today, up and down and up and down and two steps forward and three steps back. But the difference between victory and defeat or success and failure is not how often you fall, but your ability and most important, your desire to rise from your shame and regret, remembering whose you are and who lives in you, and then somehow find the strength to pick yourself up and return to the race. And this is the race we find in Hebrews 12, 1. Only this time, we're not going to run the race alone. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We started out running this race alone, but victory comes when we realize that we must run this race with the Lord. He empowers us, he lives within us, and he becomes our victory. It says that in verse two, looking unto Jesus, not to us, not to our flesh, not to thinking that we're capable of producing something good and giving it to the Lord as an offering, but looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the mystery in all of this is you and I are now in Christ. Listen carefully. It is only by believing and acting on God's promises that victory is secured. Believing and acting. God gives us so many promises in his word, but for those promises to become real to us, we have to believe them not just mentally or academically. And then we have to live as if we really had the faith to believe them. This is not sterile, dead, academic, lip service only faith. It is a vibrant faith that shows itself boldly in action. Nothing else will do and no other kind of faith pleases God. Remember, God is sovereign and nothing is too great for him. He can do whatever he chooses. And what he chooses may actually be what we find in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, where it says that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we ask or think according to the power of the Holy Spirit that works in us. God is sovereign. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in his heaven. It's my life verse. And he does what he pleases. So God is sovereign. 
He'll do whatever he pleases so you and I can rest assured that he has a plan for your deliverance and my deliverance from the Christian life we're struggling with now into the higher Christian life, the abundant life, the you are more than conqueror life that he has promised. And his deliverance is found by firmly grasping with both hands and acting upon his great promises, which are given to you. It's not given to someone else that you may deem more worthy, not given to someone who's had better parents and didn't have as much sin in their life and didn't grieve the Holy Spirit as much as maybe you did, but these promises are given to you. So before we dig deep into these three truths that will help you experience the higher Christian life by living as an overcomer regarding sin, there is, again, this foundation of belief about yourself and your value in God's eyes that you must settle in your mind firmly, firmly. Here's the first point. God is not only able, but he is also willing. We have no problem believing the first part, but it's the second part we struggle with. We spent quite a bit of time looking at Jude 24, which says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And if that wasn't good enough, it goes on. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. First part of that is, is God able to do that? Well, yes, God can do anything he wants. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. God is powerful. God is all in all. I believe God is able, but do you believe he's willing? Because if you don't believe God is willing, then this verse, this promise means nothing to you. You refuse to internalize it, accept it into your life. You're really calling God a liar. So before we even look at these three truths that you will say, well, I believe God's able to do that. I just don't think he's going to do it for me. If that's your position, these three truths will mean nothing to you and bring you no closer to God than you are right now have to commit, have to firmly settle in your mind that God is not only able, but he is also willing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you willingly faultless before his glory, and he does it with exceeding joy. Do you believe this statement about God to be true? If you do, we're ready to move on. And if you don't, then you're impugning his character by thinking he's the kind of God that could, but chooses not to. That could bless you, but won't. That will minister and bless so many other people, answer their prayers and heal them and reveal himself to them, but not you. They call that abuse in a family. And God is not like that. To be an overcomer, you must realize that the promises we're going to look at, the truths we're going to look at, that God is able to perform them, but he's also willing and has a desire to give them to you. If you believe this statement to be true, then let's begin our higher Christian life journey together. And if you don't, 
then you need to spend some time with him and get to know him a bit better. But we'll talk more about this the next time we get together. Until then.